Father, I give you thanks, and I praise your name and give you the glory for bringing us together again this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we do have the opportunity to meet in this way, that uh, despite sometimes the, the temperature being off or the, the building not being perfect in some respect or our morning not going well, Father, all those things are passing. We are yet gathered before you for the purpose of study, and in that, Father, we find great joy And we do not count the sufferings of this world to be even worthy of comparison to the joy that comes in knowing you and in our future glory. We thank you, Father, that we have the opportunity to open up your gospel this morning, that we know the story of your son and we understand the death on the cross and all that it provided, but there is so much more in your gospel waiting for us, Father. I pray that we will come with an open heart, ready to hear it and ready to understand it as you give us that opportunity. Father, for all the needs in here that have gone unspoken this morning, we lift them up to you as well, praying for your good care to be made evident. And Lord, as we speak your word here this morning, I pray the Holy Spirit would be in control and would guide all we do and say and that it would be according to your will so that it would be to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Luke 10, we are now in chapter 10. I know you all probably were wondering how long it was going to take us to get there, where well, we finally made it. And now we'll be in verse 1 today. Jesus, as we now see from the end of chapter 9, is headed out of the Galilee. He's headed south. He's now progressing through the land of Samaria onto Jerusalem and toward his resurrection, uh, his crucifixion followed by his resurrection. Last week we saw how Jesus was rejected by the Samarians, principally because they had a very strong bias against the Jews of Jerusalem. It was a mutual hatred. And because they knew Jesus was headed toward Jerusalem, they rejected him and said he couldn't stay at the inn in Samaria. Today we're going to see him speak in other regions and send messengers out to regions that he intends to pass through on his way to Jerusalem. And they also, he is prepared for them to also reject his message. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, say first, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Well, we'll stop there for a moment. Luke records here that Jesus appoints 70 men to a mission of going before him to announce his arrival. If you have an NIV version of the Bible in your hands, then you may have noticed that your version says that he appointed 72, not 70. The word in Greek, hebdomikonai, is actually translated either 70 or 72. In fact, it can have multiple meanings because It's actually a compound word made from two Greek words, and therefore its exact meaning is somewhat open to interpretation. But of the major translations, only the NIV is chosen to render it as 72. 
Every other major translation has chose to render it 70, and largely because of the historical context, not so much because of the grammatical context. Historically, 70 has been a common number in the nation of Israel's history and in the Bible, particularly when you talk about men sent out to do the work of ministry. 70 is very common. There were 70 elders in the nation of Israel. There were 70 men appointed to translate the Old Testament out of Hebrew into Greek, into the Septuagint. 70 is a recurring theme. There were 70... uh, members of the family of Jacob who entered into the land of Egypt when they went down to visit to to go into Egypt after Joseph. Seventy comes up a lot. Seventy two is not unheard of, but it's far less common. And that's the basic difference or the reason for the difference. Like we saw at both the beginning and at the end of chapter nine, here we see Jesus sending out men ahead of him, messengers ahead of him. You remember in the beginning of chapter 9, he appointed the disciples to go out and heal and to proclaim the good news, and he gave them the power to perform miracles. And at the end of chapter 9, we saw him sending messengers to Samaria in order to secure a place for him. And here again, now at the beginning of chapter 10, we see him doing something similar. But this group of messengers is going out for a different reason than the ones that went out at the end of chapter 9, the ones that went out to essentially make hotel reservations for Jesus. That's not the purpose in this time. These men are going out more like the disciples did at the beginning of chapter 9 for the purpose of declaring the kingdom and demonstrating its power and the truth of what they say by their miracles. But it's now being done on a larger scale. Now you have 70 messengers going out as opposed to what were likely just a handful of the disciples in the beginning. There are some interesting details in these verses we just read, and we want to look at them here for just a moment. First, there's this principle, and you'll see it in different places in Scripture, of men being sent out in pairs, going out together in ministry. Messengers are commonly seen going out this way in the New Testament, going out in pairs. Some examples you might remember out of the old, I mean, I'm sorry, out of Acts. You have Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas, who were often seen together in ministry. You had Judas and Silas, who went out together. Later, there was a falling out between Paul and Barnabas, so it became Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Mark. But again, still pairs. Eventually, you hear of Silas and Timothy hooked up together in ministry and on and on and on. And in my own life, I've seen this happen time and time again, where God has placed other men in my life who have a similar call or a similar desire in ministry. And we partner together in something God has called us to do. I had not long ago, a couple years ago, the the blessing of Kim DeMint's company when I went to uh, Kenya for three weeks to visit with Brian Jameson. Now, if you think about this for a moment, how... Easily, do you think it would be, how easy do you think it would be to find somebody who would be interested in just taking that kind of a trip on the spur of the moment? Never mind the time off from work or the expense of the trip, just the fact that you're going to Kenya, going to somewhere a little different, a little risky in some sense. And yet Kim jumped at the chance. And I think that was a sign in, in itself, not only of the fact that I should go, but that it was right to have somebody to go with me. And I'll tell you, in the midst of the trip, it was a great uh, source of comfort and support to have somebody else there with me throughout the trip. And uh, in fact, now that we're back, I still see Brian Jameson as one of those pairings up. There's men in this fellowship who form that for one another or with me. Even in the way we formed this small body of believers in the very beginning was between three men, myself and Danny and Matt. And that, that is, a, I think, a sense of how God chooses to work. He prefers by experience out of Scripture and by his own word to see men paired up in ministry. And by pairs, I don't mean dogmatically two, no more, no less. I do think it's flexible in terms of the number. But an island to yourself in ministry is a dangerous place to be. It puts you at greater risk. 
not only of the slings and arrows of this life that would come after those who work in ministry, but frankly, you're a danger to yourself in what you might fall tempted to and in how your flesh might pull you off the mark in terms of your lifestyle or your thinking or your teaching or just your interest in ministry. And having that partner with you is a big part of how God works to correct for that. Uh, One example I give out of a completely secular uh, setting would be exercise. If you hate getting up in the morning at 6 a.m. and jogging, then the best thing you can do is find somebody else who hates it just as much as you do, but is at least willing to commit with you to doing it on a regular basis. And then when you sleep in, they're at the door knocking, wondering why you didn't get up. And when they sleep in, you're doing it for them. And it it tends to really improve your consistency and your desire to do what you've set out to do. And God has that same understanding, obviously, of our needs in ministry and gives us men, I believe, to do that. One of the reasons, though, in this case for them to go out in pairs is different than merely supporting one another in ministry. It traces back to the law, to the book of Deuteronomy, where we hear in chapter 19 that two or more witnesses were required under the law in order to condemn somebody for an act of sin. It's simply like what we would see in a courtroom today. We don't feel very comfortable taking the word of one person against the word of another person as proof of anything. But if you have two people testifying to something against a person, there's far more weight given to two eyewitness testimony than it is to simply have a he said, she said kind of uh, standoff. And under the law, it was actually established that you could not bring someone to judgment, to a priest or to somebody for judgment of sin, unless there were two or more witnesses against that person. We're going to see a little bit more of why that was important in this case as we work through the scripture. But uh, for now, we just want to put that aside. So we have safety in numbers, issues of accountability, and we also have an issue of a witness here. In verse 2, Jesus says that the harvest is plentiful. This is a phrase I know we've heard before. The laborers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. And look what his instruction is, though. His instruction to these men, in light of the fact that we have a plentiful harvest waiting, but we have few laborers, is to pray that God would send laborers. It's an interesting moment if you think about it, because when if, if I were to present to you this, this precept that the fields are white, they're ready for the harvest, and the laborers are few, how many of us would think, all right, well then let me get up and go take care of that problem. Let me go out and collect whatever it is God has appointed for men to collect in his harvest. Jesus doesn't say that. He may say that to somebody individually, but his first command is pray that God would send somebody out to do that which implies, among other things, that we may not be the one. Or we may be the one, and in prayer, God may make that known to us. But the first step is to be sure we are the one. Or, if nothing else, that we ask God to send the right person. The analogy here that he uses is a very common one. Fields, harvests, men going out as laborers in the field. It's a common analogy, and it's actually pretty simple. Just break it down for a moment. The field is the world of unbelievers. It's the place where the work is done to create the crop. The harvest within that field are to be those who are being separated out by God, by the Holy Spirit, the ones who are to be harvested. In other words, uh, the believers within the field of the unbelieving world. You can see this actually in Revelation 14. If you studied Revelation with me, you may remember in chapter 14, God tells his angel at one point to go down to the earth, put in his sickle, He says, for the hour has come to reap the harvest of the earth because the harvest is ripe. 
It's imagery that is consistently used in Scripture to speak about removing unbelievers from believers, removing believers from unbelievers. The separating out of the sheep and the goats is another way to put it. In this context, then, looking at the story we're in today, Jesus is essentially remarking that these 70 men, these messengers he's about to send out, are going out to do the kind of work that Jesus has just said is often lacking. We often lack men and women to go out and do what Jesus is now telling these 70 men to go do. The work, in other words, of going out to collect, to reap the harvest of believers from amongst the unbelievers. This is an important principle. And I don't think we we sometimes get the subtleties of it. The work of making a believer, is that our work? Is that the work of these laborers that Jesus is referring to? The work of actually taking an unbeliever and moving them out of their unbelief and placing them in a state of belief, is that the responsibility of the laborer? No. Scripture is clear on that. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And that work takes place with, or ultimately without, the contributions of men. God is never dependent on men in order to bring someone to an understanding of salvation. And if you only need one example, the best one is Saul on the road to to Damascus. If Saul can become Paul, the worst becoming arguably the best, and do it without a single person involved in that moment of conversion. Yes, there were men who came afterward, built him up in the faith, explained to him what had happened, been a support to him. True. But in the moment of his conversion, there was not another human being involved. If God has the potential, the capability to do that for Saul, then it's clear he has the capability to do that for anyone. Though that's not how he typically chooses to do it. And that's an important second point. That Paul being converted, or Saul being converted into Paul on that lonely road without a man to bring the message does not mean that is the way we should re- rely on God to do that work on a continuing basis. My point here is that he has decided, he has chosen, he desires to call men into service, to call laborers to, to service, to go out into the field where the harvest is ready and to help in that work. That's God's desire, though he's not dependent on us to do that. And the fact is the work is light. The work is light. Talk to a farmer. Is it harder to reap the harvest or to sow it? Is it harder to reap the harvest or to water and to care for it as it grows? He'll tell you invariably it is much easier to reap than it is to produce. And God is the one who does all the production. All he asks us to do is the reaping. It's the relatively easy part. I tend to think we make this process of evangelism a lot more difficult than in truth it really is. We assume, I think, that we have to convince, cajole, argue, debate, you know, uh, basically persuade people into believing something that they're all kind of predisposed against believing. It's like trying to convince them to sell, to buy some old broken down used car that we, you know, have had trouble offloading onto anyone. And, you know, my goodness, how much difficulty is it going to take for me to actually have someone buy this junker? I think we get a sense like that, and we have this innate sense of why even bother, because this is such a hard thing to do. Who's going to believe what I have to say? And even when we do find success, once in a rare while, we assume it's just a fleeting thing. I got lucky once. I hit the right person on the right day. What's the odds it'll happen again? And that kind of mentality creeps in, and it makes us sort of self-defeating. We aren't necessarily prone to go out a second time. Jesus says, on the other hand, the harvest is plentiful. You know, he says later in John 4, chapter 4, verse 35, that the field is white for the harvest. If you can imagine what 
grain looks like as it comes into a readiness for harvest, there's so much, there's so much fruit on it, it's so white that you can't see anything but a field of white. That's a sign of how easy it should be for us to go out and harvest. But instead, we imagine the worst. We imagine people aren't going to respond positively, and I think we're sort of surprised if they do. And that's going to drive us to poor results. And here's what I mean by that. Our thinking in this regard will drive us to poor results. When we assume that the power to save souls is in us, is dependent on us, it lies with us, with our abilities, our technique, our methods, you know, if I have the right verbiage down, if we assume that's what determines who becomes a believer, then we're going to be completely discouraged by the impossibility of it. And rightly so, because that is an impossibility. It is impossible for us to bring someone to salvation in our own power. It doesn't happen that way. But when we assume that's how it happens and we realize how impossible that task feels, we're discouraged to even try. On the other hand, if we think of it more like an Easter egg hunt, which is an analogy I like to use on occasion, an Easter egg hunt. Try to imagine what it was like when you were nine or six or four and you had to go out on an Easter egg hunt. You had no doubt there were Easter eggs out there. I mean, what child assumes their parents have sent them out on an Easter egg hunt with no eggs to find? Am I the only one whose parents did that? No, just kidding. It's like the snipe thing. You know the old snipe hunts from when you were a little kid and you went camping? All right, that's a cruel trick that teenagers play on you, or maybe your parents. But when you're talking about Easter eggs, they wouldn't dare do that. Easter eggs are to be found. God says this. Jesus says the field is white. The harvest is ready. He's effectively saying the Easter eggs are out there. Go get them. Now, everywhere you look, do you find an egg? No, of course not. The fun is not in the looking, it's in the finding, and it's because you know you will find if you look long enough that you keep looking. You don't give up when you don't find it the first time because, well, it just means that's one less place I have to look. Where's the next one? Eventually, I'm going to find what they've hidden for me. I believe, truly, that's how Scripture is viewing the process of evangelizing. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. And that's actually part of the fun. If you think about an Easter egg hunt, the worst part of it is there's somebody else looking at the same time, isn't there? You're more worried that they'll find it before you than that you won't find anything. If we had that sense, if the body of Christ collectively had that same sense of evangelism, the harvest is ready, the believers are being made by the Holy Spirit every day, waiting for someone to come, present the gospel message, and in that moment, they'll understand it and respond because their heart's been prepared for it. And in that response, God gets glory for having done the work, And you gain the blessing of an obedient laborer. And the only challenge you have is getting there before the other Christian does. If that was truly our view, think about how evangelism would take place in the body of Christ. When we see a person as a potential convert, that egg, in other words, then we'll approach them with the expectation that they may be one who's been appointed to salvation and we're there to help in that process. Acts 13.48 says this, When the Gentiles heard this, meaning when they heard the gospel message, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many in that group who God had appointed to eternal life responded positively to the gospel message, as is the process of salvation. If we see a positive response in our effort, we give thanks to God for being the one through whom God worked that bringing of the good news. And if we don't see that response, we do what the disciples did. We move on. We look for the next Easter egg. And at the very least, we may have planted a seed that later God will choose to use to bring that person to a knowledge of the truth, even if he doesn't choose to do it in the moment when we delivered the message. So be it. 
So if Jesus calls us to pray that God will stir the hearts of men to go out and get up and be a laborer, perhaps we might be one of them, then that's our calling. To seek laborers, not to seek believers per se. They'll be made. We need people to go out and do the work of the ministry to collect them, if you will, to bring them into the body and disciple them, as the Great Commission says. Now, in the rest of those verses, we see Jesus giving instructions very similar to the ones he gave at the beginning of chapter 9 to his disciples when they went out in that initial foray in working. Look in Luke 10, verse 3. He says, Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Listen to his words. And I want you to be careful because he's not saying to the disciples... Be careful, otherwise you might be like lambs in the midst of wolves. Protect yourselves, uh, otherwise you, know, you might be vulnerable. No, he's saying, I'm sending you out purposefully, intentionally, in a vulnerable position. I am making you vulnerable. I'm sending you out defenseless into wolves, purposefully. Look at the following verses and you'll see that that's exactly what he's doing. He says, don't carry any money. Don't have any way to provide for yourself. Don't carry a bag. Don't have any way to bring provision, clothing, or anything else that you might need to to make your trip easier. Don't even bring shoes. Don't even make it easy for you to walk. No basic preparations for your trip. No assumptions being made. You don't know if you're going a long way, a short way, if you're staying away a long time or a short time. You have no sense of what's ahead of you, and you're not making any plans around any assumptions. Completely vulnerable. And then he says, take whatever you're given. Accept whatever you receive. But expect those that you minister to to care for you. Eat, I love this one. Eat what's put before you. Pull that one out, parents, anytime you need to. That's a handy one. And again, the point being, you're completely dependent on what God provides. You know, that's an important concept in Scripture all by itself. By what they were being given, God was providing for them. So, if they sat down to a meal that they didn't particularly prefer, if they rejected that meal, they were effectively rejecting God's provision in the moment. It's not simply a matter of, well, that's not what I like. I'll wait until something better comes along. God said, that's what I gave you, therefore it is the best thing for you, by definition. Be content, in other words. Finally, he says, heal those who are sick, which we know is a way of demonstrating the proof of his message. The miracles prove who he is. And then in all those things, declare the kingdom. The point here is much like it was in chapter 9. God is going to work through these men to call others to an understanding that the kingdom has arrived. He'll use works to gain some attention or to simply demonstrate the proof of what they say to be true. But he does not want their work to be mistaken for his work. He doesn't want the work that God is about to do to be misattributed to men. He chooses to work through men, but he does it in such a way that his strength is made evident in their weakness, in their vulnerability, their success will be attributed to God. Paul says this about effectively the same thing in his ministry in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. Listen to what he says here. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And he's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world, the despised, God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. It's not random. It's purposeful that God has set men in a position of weakness and then chosen others of a like kind, so that in that 
choosing, and in that demonstration of weakness, his strength is made more evident. So he set these men up, essentially, to be like sheep among wolves, to be vulnerable, to be 100% dependent upon him, and then their success will be attributed to him, which is the way it should be. How about the comment in verse 4, though? He says, don't greet anyone along the way. Doesn't that strike you as perhaps counter to the whole purpose of the mission? I send you out to declare the kingdom, but don't talk to anybody on the way. Well, it's probably not what you think it means. In their culture and in this day, in the Eastern culture in this day, the custom, when you saw a stranger come, was to greet them. But greeting them doesn't mean like you and I think of it today. Greeting them was a much more involved process. It could take days. It could extend on for days and days and days. And Jesus doesn't want these men to be sidetracked by some admirer, some friend, somebody who's trying to show off their hospitality effectively, and then goes into this long, drawn-out greeting that delays their work. You can see a little example of this out of Judges, out of the culture that was in place in that day. Judges 19.4. The context of the story doesn't really matter, but just listen to this one example of where a stranger is being greeted. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him. So this is the husband of some lady, and the lady's father detains him, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up early in the morning, and he prepared to go, and the girl's father said to the son-in-law, sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down, ate, and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, please be willing to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but the father-in-law urged him so that he spent another night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, please sustain yourself and wait until the afternoon. So both of them ate, and it goes on and on. That's very common. That's very common. A similar scene when you see uh, in Genesis, where Isaac and, 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 uh, is looking for a wife, Rebecca, and the servant goes to take Rebecca back from her family, and the, the father of Rebecca says to the servant, stay a little longer, stay a little longer. And finally, the servant says, hey, I've got to go. I've got to take Rebecca back. And that's the culture of the day. That would be a greeting in their culture. He says, don't greet anybody like that. You've got too much work to do. When they declare the kingdom, Jesus tells them to approach the people in a very specific pattern. He says, go into the house, and when you're in there, declare that peace has arrived. And he says, if the man inside that house hears the disciples' message, and if there is peace of God evident in his life, meaning if he is seen to be living in the fullness of the Spirit, demonstrating the love and the peace of God outwardly, then by doing so, he will be blessed by the arrival of the disciples. By their message of peace, it will reside with him. It's a simple way of saying that his message of the gospel will have been received. It will be evident in the way this man lives and in his reception to it. That peace of the, of the gospel message will reside with this man. It will have found its home, in other words. But if that peace is not evident, if the disciples' declaration of the gospel comes back to him effectively, the peace of, of the message, in other words, does not find a sympathetic audience. It does not find somewhere to rest if it returns to the disciple. Think of it like a gift being rejected. If that's the kind of setting he finds in that home, then he says, you are to do in verse 10, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, Go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazim. Woe to you, Bethesda. 
For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, putting in sackcloth and ashes, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So Jesus gives instructions, even more detailed actually than we saw in chapter 9, about how they are to bring the message. And he essentially repeats the same instructions with regard to how they're to treat a city that rejects them. Wipe the dust off your feet. A sign of contempt for their rejection of the gospel. But then he adds some really harsh comparisons, doesn't he? Comparisons we didn't see in chapter 9. He says, any town that rejects the message is going to find their own judgment in the judgment day less tolerable than what will be merited out to the city of Sodom. And you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, woe to Chorazim and Bethesda. These are the towns that he visited repeatedly in his trek through the Galilee. They both sit on the northern shore of the Galilee. He compares those towns to Tyre and Sidon. Those are Phoenician cities that resided on the northern part of what is modern-day Israel, out on the Mediterranean Sea. Phoenician cities that were clearly pagan, Gentile pagan cities, had no interest in the things of God. But he says, if I had gone to those cities and performed the same miracles there that I performed in Chorazin and Bethesda, they would have repented. Which implies that the miracles didn't have that effect in Chorazin and Bethesda. Or he wouldn't have had to say that. The comparison here actually is even more damning than it sounds. Because he isn't just comparing two different cities. He's comparing two different cultures. He's comparing Jewish cities to pagan, Gentile, Phoenician cities. Because remember, the Jews, if they rejected the truth of a Messiah while the Gentiles were willing to accept it, it was a particularly damning thing to say about the Jews because they were the ones who had full knowledge of what a Messiah was. They were the ones who had the word of God telling them to look for a Messiah, to understand the need for a Messiah, to realize God had promised to bring one. And they had taught their generations for for centuries about this very principle. Their own word told them that. And yet when the Messiah shows up, they reject him. But the Gentiles who knew nothing of a Messiah, didn't even know what it was, would be willing to repent. That's how damning this statement was about the Jews and their response. It's much like how Jonah went to the city of Nineveh, if you know the story of Jonah. Jonah being a Jewish prophet, was sent to Nineveh, a Gentile city, and the enemy of the nation of Israel, and told, go preach to Nineveh. And if you don't know the story, do you know why Jonah got swallowed by a fish? Because he was running the opposite direction of Nineveh, hoping against hope that he could avoid doing what God told him to do. Why? Because he knew it would work. Jonah's desire to avoid going to Nineveh was because he knew if he did go and he preached the word, that they would repent. And he hated them so much because of what they had done to the nation of Israel, he didn't want to see them repent. That's how hardened Jonah was. And yet he knew what God could do. It's the same kind of principle being espoused here by Jesus, that the Gentiles would have responded positively. But why does he suggest that? Why does he suggest that Gentiles would respond positively when the Jews won't? Well, perhaps it's because the Gentiles had no preconceived ideas when it came to a Messiah. They hadn't even heard of it, as I said. So they had no established religious power structure that would see the declaration of the kingdom of God as an automatic threat to the way that they did things in that culture, unlike the Pharisees 
and the Sadducees and the lawyers and the scribes, all of whom saw what Jesus was proclaiming to be an immediate threat to their power center. And as unbelievers, as the men God Christ even calls these men, sons of their father the devil, they are not believers in any sense of the word, then they're not going to be responding positively to something that will tear away their power structure. Jesus says those cities, meaning the people in those cities, would receive an even greater punishment than those in the city of Sodom. That's kind of a difficult thing to imagine, isn't it? It brings up one very interesting concept, which we will explore later in chapters 11 and 12. But the concept is pretty straightforward. Are there degrees of hell? Are there degrees of punishment? I mean, when you think about it, if we're all going to hell, what really difference does it make who gets there first or last? Or what part of it I'm in? But apparently, based on what Scripture is saying here and elsewhere, there can be considered degrees or levels of punishment, which we'll look at, as I said, later in chapters 11 and 12, because it has more meaning than just that. I do find it interesting here that Capernaum is mentioned. Specifically, Capernaum is said to be a city that will find itself in Hades. Again, talking about the people in the city. Remember Capernaum? Capernaum was almost, we said, like his hometown, his base of operations. He would go in and out of Capernaum probably more frequently than any any other town mentioned in the region of the Galilee. And wasn't that the city where Jesus credited them for responding positively to his miracles while his own hometown, Nazareth, wouldn't? Remember he said that about Capernaum? But apparently they didn't do enough. Apparently whatever it was they responded to, whatever their response was, it, it wasn't to include seeing Jesus for who he really was. They loved the miracles. We had already been told about that. They admired his teaching. Scripture tells us about that earlier in chapter 4 and 5. But they never accepted him as the Messiah, apparently. And you can see with that alone what a fine line it is. You see how fine this line is between being saved and simply looking like someone who's saved? I mean, you can acknowledge that Jesus lived... You can acknowledge even that he had supernatural power and believe in the miracles that were quoted in Scripture because the city of Capernaum believed in him, we're told. You can believe that his teaching came from the mouth of God because we're told they believed in the power and were amazed by the power of his teaching. That was all written about Capernaum earlier. You can have all those things, apparently, but unless you're willing to acknowledge him as the Messiah, as the one God promised to save you from your sin then you're no better off than those in Capernaum are. And he calls them destined for Hades, for hell. It's a fine line. It's a very important line. A line nonetheless. Jesus has commissioned these 70 men to go out into the Jewish cities, to go to the cities he plans to travel through himself on the way to Jerusalem, and to find people willing to cross that line. That's who he's looking for. The Easter eggs. These are the people who cross the line, so to speak, who appreciate and embrace Jesus as their Messiah. But when they find someone who's unwilling to cross that line, whatever they do say about Jesus, if they're unwilling to say he is our Messiah, then they are to declare, to declare judgment against that person. You know, this is challenging because that, I argue, is still the requirement today. We are, if we are appointed, we are workers in God's field. We go out to collect the harvest. And I'll tell you, this isn't just a role for someone like Brian Jameson, you know, the African evangelist. It isn't just the role for uh, someone in my position or, or in ministry in some other form. It's not something that happens only during revival meetings. 
know, this isn't something we just save up and when we do the trip to Mexico on spring break, that's when we evangelize. This isn't something that happens under some real special, specific set of circumstances. That's not what Jesus is teaching. It's supposed to be that when we all leave this building this morning and go out wherever we go for the rest of the week, then we are supposed to go out with an expectation that God will send men and women like us outside to everyday life looking for, quote, Easter eggs at the grocery checkout, at the bank teller, at, who, at the person who sits next to you in the office. And we're not supposed to persuade them in our own ability. We're not supposed to trick them into believing in some sense or coming to church. We're not going to try to cloak the gospel message in some kind of feel-good doublespeak that makes it just sound like another you know, self-help program. We're not going to, I hope, use you know, pop culture to just basically perform an elaborate bait-and-switch Come for the music and then maybe get the gospel. Come for the games and the toys. Maybe we'll give you something about Jesus in the meantime. Come for the food. Maybe we'll sneak in the gospel message while you're there. That's not the way it's meant to work. Though God may work through it, despite us, that doesn't mean that's the right way to do it. What does he say to these men? Go out in a vulnerable way. Vulnerability in our day doesn't mean necessarily having no shoes on. That was a concept of the culture. For us, though, the vulnerability might be what? Complete transparency in a culture that has no no idea anymore of what transparency is, in my opinion. Complete transparency. I'm a Christian. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. Because if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. That's transparency. And it won't win a lot of friends. And it will immediately tell you who's on what side of that line. Or who's willing to hear it. And when the declaration finds a receptive audience, we give God credit. But when it doesn't, that declaration of peace returns to us to be used elsewhere, in other words. And Scripture says we become a witness against that person for their rejection. Should they never embrace the truth? Should that seed we plant never mature? Should they end up an unbeliever on their deathbed? Then in judgment, men and women like you and I who brought good news to them at some point ultimately are witnesses against them. By necessity. If you've ever had to been called to be a witness in a trial, it's a nerve-wracking experience. It's a painful thing. It's, you, know, you, you, you know you're doing the right thing, but there's a part of you that just hates going through the whole experience. My dad was an attorney and still is. My brother's an attorney. And I can tell you from personal experience in the courtroom, there's, it's not like television. You, know, you don't have somebody show up in this casual way and just sort of you know, nonchalantly answer questions on the, um, next to the bench, uh, you know, in, in the witness seat. It's a very trying moment. It's a very intense, lots of tears, quite frankly, is very common because people are so emotional about it. And yet we go through it because we know it's the right thing to do. And though it pains us to think of somebody in a position of being judged and we being a witness against them, Scripture says that that is a part of what God is doing. That is a reason why Jesus is sending out these 70 men. Not so that every town that they will reach before Jesus arrives will become 100% converted. We know that didn't happen. And he even prepares them for the rejection. He says, when they reject you, do this, that, and the other. It was, a, it was an understood outcome. But he says, you've got to go do it. Think about this. Jesus is God. He knows the future. He knows these towns are going to reject the message. So why bother sending somebody? Doesn't that seem like waste of time, if you're God? Only if you think the only reason to send is to convert. It is in part, yes, of course, but it is also in part a purpose to provide judgment so that God will be just in bringing judgment. For the message did go and was heard.
But in any case, regardless of what success or failure we see in that moment, we have done as God commanded us to do. We have been the laborer he commanded us to be. And we will be blessed for having been obedient. And, and arguably that should be our only thought in the moment. The love of the gospel message in the hope of someone receiving it joyfully. But ultimately, our willingness to go is not dependent on our success. We don't judge whether we go out or not because we may or may not succeed. We go because we're called to go. And in obedience we go. For as Jesus says in verse 16, the one who accepts the message that we bring concerning Christ are accepting him personally. And when they reject our message, they're rejecting him personally. They're not rejecting you. They're not rejecting your method. It's not like your technique didn't work. It's not that you didn't get the verbiage down well enough and if you practice more, it'll work better the next time. He's saying that in the moment the gospel message arrived, however it arrived, they had a face-to-face encounter with Christ and they rejected Him, not you. And when they did, they rejected the Father. We have nothing to lose in doing what God calls us to do. We have everything to gain. And we ought to go out with the joy that a child takes to the moment of an Easter egg hunt. If we can bring our minds to that memory We should go out with an expectation that though they may say no, it's one less person I have to check with. Who's the next one? And when you find the one who says yes, you'll have the same joy that we had as children and much more, knowing its eternal significance. That would be my encouragement to you today is to take that same attitude. We'll end there today as we'll go into the chapter again next week. See if you can't find the courage, the opportunity, the desire in this week to come. Maybe just once. If it's not a common pattern, if it's not natural for you, if it feels awkward, then just try once. And, you know, it can be a family member, certainly. There's no reason to exclude anyone. But I would argue, try it once with someone you don't know. Pick that right opportunity. The guy that's carrying your groceries out to your car. The lady who hands you your dry cleaning. Just try it for a moment. And if they blow you off, you just had an opportunity to practice. Do it again. God will determine your success. You won't. That's the call. Let's go to him in prayer and pray for that opportunity. Pray for laborers to join us in the field. Father, we do pray that the harvest being so full and ready would have laborers sent out into it, Father, even in our day today. In a culture, Father, and in a world that believes that the gospel message, the Christian message is already saturated, it's already well known. Who could I possibly find who doesn't understand the truth already? Let us never be biased in that way, Father. Let us have a true desire to trust that you have appointed for salvation a man or a woman waiting for us to bring that message to them so that they would respond as you've appointed them to, so that there would be, Father, the opportunity to welcome into the family of God another man or woman like ourselves, saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, but by the power of God, so that none may boast. Use us in that way, Father. If not us, Father, we pray you would send many others, that they would feel the calling on their heart and would respond. And in what we've preached today in this scripture this morning, Father, I pray that there would be hearts changed even now and here, and if not in this room, Father, perhaps in listening later, there'd be a man or woman who's heard the message of the call of the gospel, and whether a call to faith or a call to go out in ministry, or a call simply to be more obedient in their own walk, I pray, Father, they would have the courage to answer that call, to step up, to step out, to confess with their mouth, Father, that they believe. Whatever it is, Father, that you've called them to do, I pray that they would understand it and act upon it. 
And we do thank you, Lord, that we've been used, perhaps, by you for that purpose. Give us great opportunity this week. Give us a heart and desire to step out somewhere for someone and to speak the truth of what you've taught us, that there is a God in heaven who sits on his throne, who had a son who he brought to earth to die so that by his sacrifice we could be forgiven. And that those who trust in that sacrifice will spend an eternity with you. And those who reject that opportunity will pay the penalty of their sin eternally in judgment. And we pray, Father, we would have the courage to speak that in love. And that you, Father, would do the work of bringing many sons to glory. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, for our Bible study and our time in worship. Bless this small fellowship. Father, grow it as you see fit. And Father, bring our message to the city and into our world through us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.